Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party, where we specialize in popping balloons and throwing shade rather than confetti, all in the spirit of taking the military, media, congressional, industrial complex to task. We'll be talking to freelance military and technology writer Kelsey Atherton in the second half, but let's talk headlines and hawks right now. Dan and I have agreed to each come up with two of the most outrageous examples of warmongers in the media over the last week. And I have to say, it was difficult whittling this down. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has raised the level of mainstream media madness to heights we haven't seen since the Iraq war, where the modus operandi was to serve as message force multipliers for the US military and government. And this crisis, the corporate media is doing the same for President Zelensky, the Ukrainian government, and the Western response. The coverage has taken sides on moralistic and emotional grounds rather than focusing on trying to get the most accurate information about what is going on on the ground and providing context not only for the war and the politics itself, but for the potential impact of direct Western assistance, a protracted insurgency, and the destabilizing effects of sanctions and a potential new Cold War. As in the Iraq War, alternative views are mostly marginalized these days, if not demonized, in this case as Putin propaganda. So we'd like to point out the crappy opinion makers and anticipate where they might be leading public opinion down a primrose path. And we're going to use our platform here at Crashing the War Party to do it. So let's start with you, Dan. Um, Who is your first warmonger of note for the week? Uh, Thanks, Kelly. So the the first one that caught my attention, this was an op-ed that came out in the Wall Street Journal uh, earlier this week. Uh, I think it was over the weekend, actually. Uh, And it uh, the, the title was Russian withdrawal isn't enough. And uh, the idea behind it or, or the, the core of the argument is that no sanctions relief should be offered to Russia until Putin has been forced from power, until he leaves office. And so essentially a, a call for regime change as the condition for any sanctions relief, uh, which of course would make uh, the possibility of bringing the war to a, a swift conclusion, a negotiated conclusion, uh, essentially impossible. Uh, by making it a, a question of survival, uh, an existential question for Putin, rather than a political question of, of the kind of compromise that he's willing to accept. And so uh, besides making Ukraine's position uh, impossible by, by basically depriving them of one of their main points of leverage, which is to be able to offer sanctions relief from the U.S. and its allies as part of any deal, uh, it also puts us on a collision course with the Russians uh, in, a, in a way that uh, endangers everyone, because if the government in Moscow believes itself to be under threat, or if Putin himself be, thinks that he is personally under threat, uh, and that only his uh, removal will get Russia out of this box that he's put it in, uh, then he has every incentive to intensify the war and also to escalate uh, beyond Ukraine, potentially, uh, or at least to to threaten to do so. And so it's it's a, an extremely destabilizing and dangerous idea. And the, th- the thing is, it's not just something that crops up on the Wall Street Journal editorial page uh, and, and opinion pages. Uh, this is something that I've seen people floating uh, in different ways uh, elsewhere too. It's, it's, it's becoming an increasingly popular idea that we should insist on uh, 
essentially the, the total defeat for Putin uh, that we can't actually enforce without enormous risk. And so there's this uh, sort of hangover from the, the legacy of World War II where we think of total victory as the only real victory and everything else counts as defeat. And it's it's just uh, absolutely crazy. Uh, and and uh, so Bing West is, is the one who wrote the, the op-ed. I don't think I said that actually. Um, and, and he's the one who's been arguing uh, this line and it's it's extremely dangerous and, and we need to stay far, far away from that idea. Yeah, and it seems like there's a strange confidence about regime change in this country or at least mm-hmm. among the mainstream media. And I don't even know where it comes from. I mean, we saw this during uh, the Syrian war uh, where there were, were similar uh, proposals that we didn't let up until Assad was gone. Well, guess what? Assad is still there. He's in charge of the country. He's all but won the war. And now all of all of his neighbors, the leaders uh, in the Middle East, are reaching out to him, having him over for supper. And the whole talk of regime change is gone. Um, but in the meantime, you know, we created the conditions for a long, protracted insurgency there. And uh, to what end? You know, we still have sanctions on that on that country, and the only people suffering right now are the Syrian people. And so, where does this come from? I mean, you could say, oh well, we depose these bad leaders like Saddam Hussein uh, and Muammar Gaddafi, but those two countries are still in um, a, a near failed state. You know, Iraq may be doing a little bit better, but when you look at the politics there, they're completely corrupt. Um, the people aren't, you know, they, they can't pay their bills. Uh, the, mo- the money is not moving there because it's all been corrupted um, and, and captured uh, by vying political groups. It's just, it, 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 there's the promise that, that somehow regime change was, change was going to end up uh, with a political solution and a, and a, dem- and a flourishing democracy was was an illusion, but still these are are these people keep talking about it like it's an actual option here. Right. Well, and I think one thing that we have to remember with regime changers, it's it's a lot like with people who advocate for for broad sanctions. Uh, they talk about it as though it's supposed to improve the situation or fix a certain problem, uh, but really what they're most interested in is simply inflicting damage and and weakening the targeted country. So the, for, for regime changers, they'll, they'll look at Syria and they'll say, well, we didn't bring down Assad, but we, we wrecked the country uh, and, and weakened them. And so now uh, they're, they're less uh, of a problem than they used to be. Uh, or, you know, yes, Gaddafi died and, and Libya has been destabilized and all of North Africa has been destabilized. But, hey, well, at least he's dead. And, and so they, they, they don't, I think they don't really reckon with or, or care about those consequences afterward no. as long as as long as the destruction gets done uh and then i you know, I'm, I'm afraid that that's that's the same thinking that we see here there, there's no concern about what comes next as long as russia is thrown into chaos or russia is is severely weakened and so you know something that i think people don't appreciate is that after the fall of the soviet union there was tremendous fear that the soviet union would fall into a massive civil war, and the, the the stability that did in fact follow from the immediate dissolution of the USSR was a surprise to a lot of people. Uh, and we don't, we really don't want to see civil war convulse most of the Eurasian landmass 
especially when you have lots of nuclear weapons lying around in that country. And so people should be very careful about what they wish for, because even when regime change works, as we've seen, uh, quote unquote works, uh, it leaves a mess in its wake. Right. So So what's what's one of yours, Kelly? Yeah. So I picked up on a piece mostly because I really love the headline, but there's a lot of meat potatoes here, too. Ray McGovern has a piece in antiwar.com that he put up, I I believe it was on Monday, uh, entitled, Is Chuck Todd a a Chemical Weapon? (laughs) And uh, I I said, oh, my goodness, that's the the best headline I've seen um, in a while. Uh, I go to read through. And basically, Ray is uh, who is a former CIA officer, uh, intelligence gatherer, who has become an arch critic of, of U.S., foreign policy, and he's one of the best out there. And he's picked up on a general trend that he's seen in the corporate media right now of um, interviewers, hosts, reporters, whatever you want to call them, you know, grilling the uh, Washington um, uh, leadership or even beyond that. In this case, it's uh, the NATO uh, chief, Jens uh, Stoltenberg, about whether or not chemical, the use of chemical weapons by Russia, which has not occurred yet, would be a red line. And he picks up on this trend and he talks about how um, on Meet the Press uh, on Sunday, this past Sunday, uh, Chuck Todd repeatedly asked NATO Secretary Jen Stoltenberg whether chemical weapons might change the Western calculus on the intervention in Ukraine. And he quotes uh, Chuck Todd as saying, uh, quote, is a no-fly zone forever off the table or would the use of chemical weapons make NATO rethink? And two minutes later, he asked Russia's use of chemical weapons, would that be considered though an escalation on uh, his, meaning Putin's part, that would make NATO rethink? So he's repeating the question. Of course, Stoltenberg didn't seem to have a very good answer. Um, he appeared nonplussed, gave a non-response. Um, to which Todd replied condescendingly, according to McGovern, it does sound as though you don't have an answer yet. And so McGovern goes back and he says, you know, it was less than 10 years ago that Chuck Todd did the same thing and, quote, baiting a trap for President Barack Obama. The idea was to trick the president into launching an open war against Syria based on a false flag chemical attack blamed on Syrian President Bashar Assad. And he did the same thing at the very end of a press conference. He asked Obama um, whether or not a chemical weapon would change his calculus. And and Obama did say, yes, it would change my equation. And then that is the famous red line um, established by Obama. Um, so, So basically, McGovern is pointing out that it's not only Chuck Todd, it's the it's the Washington press corps uh, in league with people like Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who came out talking about chemical weapons as a red line. McGovern thinks that this is probably uh, signaling some false flag event to happen. He says immediately, I can't say either way, but it is kind of disconcerting that the, the mainstream media seems to be salivating over the idea of a red line over a chemical weapon, which would obviously drag the U.S. and NATO into a direct confrontation with Russia. Well, and I think that's that's the thing that they keep looking for these scenarios where they can, where there will be some pretext for intervention, where there will be some uh, 
way of trying to 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 agitate for it. Uh, and and you and you do see this in a lot of the questioning that the White House has been getting. You see it in in questions coming from uh, the press corps in general. Uh, I think there was a, a video by the Intercept uh, that they put out of uh, a whole slew of reporters oh, yeah, in the White House press corps. Yeah, where, where one after the other, they just kept asking the same question <laughs> or the same two questions. Uh, the, basically, the Ukrainian government wants a no-fly zone and it wants these MiGs. Why won't you give them what they want? Uh, or words to that effect. And and they just kept co- coming at Saki every time trying to, to get the White House to commit to something uh, when the, the administration has, to its credit, been very firm in saying we're not doing these things yeah. because it's not in our interest. It's not in the interest of our allies of, of European security. And so they, they, they are just being relentless in, in pushing this line. And uh, the the logical response, I think, to, to the, those sorts of setup questions is even if, God forbid, the Russians were to use chemical weapons, uh, and, and I, I sincerely hope that doesn't happen uh, for the sake of the people in Ukraine, but if it were to happen, does it make sense to then get into a nuclear war to enforce a norm against the use of chemical weapons. No, it doesn't. And so you, you have to, to think about these things beyond the first step. And, and I fear that what we are getting in a lot of the media coverage, especially coming from, uh, from some of these uh, hosts on, on cable and, and network news, is, is that they're, they're trying to get people worked up into a frenzy to demand these options without thinking about what will happen in the second step, after exactly. they've done the, the things that uh, they're asking for, and so it's it's really uh, irresponsible. Uh, and, and in connection with that, that leads in nicely to my other uh, hawkish uh, zealot of not just the week, but really of the month, uh, which is Representative Adam Kinsinger, uh, who has been on the warpath, uh, quite literally, uh, insisting on a no-fly zone and on sending planes to Ukraine and basically giving the Ukrainians anything that they might ask for, uh, regardless of the consequences. And uh, he, he has been uh, especially uh, almost as rabid as Gary Kasparov on this point. He has been uh, on lots of cable shows. That, that he's getting lots of airtime, lots of coverage, uh, because he's delivering the message that a lot of these programs seem to want to put out, uh, which is that you know, we, we have to do more. We always have to do more uh, in the conflict, regardless of whether... U.S. interests are at stake, regardless of what the consequences would be for the U.S. and Europe. Uh, we, we just have to do more. And it's this, this do-moreism that has you know, been rotting people's brains for the last month. Uh, and Kinziger has been one of the lead uh, examples of that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I know that we're running out of time for this segment. So I'm just going to riff off of that with another do-moreism uh, from Elliot Cohen, at the Atlantic. I mean, he's been doing these articles for the last two weeks or more or the month uh, about why uh, why the United States isn't leaning in more on the uh, Ukraine crisis. Uh, I think his last piece was called America's Hesitation is Heartbreaking. Now, um, Elliot Cohen is a quintessential neocon, now never Trumper. He's very well connected in Washington. He is a professor and has been, I don't know if he still is, the head of the uh, Strategic Studies Department at SAIS, which is the premier international relations school. 
of Johns Hopkins here in Washington. So he's no joke. And he has gotten a perch at The Atlantic. And his latest article is called, Why Can't the West Admit That Ukraine Is Winning? And I found that very interesting. So his thesis is that the media is actually um, downplaying the successes of, of Ukraine against the Russian uh, invasion, which I am not seeing this at all. All I'm seeing in the media is how awful the Russian forces have performed, how great the resistance has been. Um, but I, my, my sense is that this is Elliot Cohen chiding the mainstream media to be to serve more as a cheerleader and less as a, as, 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 as a reportage in this case. And his I, his theme is, and it was the same theme as during the Iraq War, where he was writing this uh, articles incessantly about how we needed more stomach, um, more skin in the game, uh, you know, uh, for a long term uh, counterinsurgency in Iraq. This is this is the same thing he is doing here. Um, he. Uh, I think he's treading on in dangerous waters because what he writes about in this article is that um, that there is uh, that with with the right amount of assistance, and he talks about all of the weapons pouring in and the fighters and the mercenaries pouring in that you that Ukraine uh, can prevail. And so what he's saying is, dig in for the long haul. We're all in. Um, have heart and stomach. And we will prevail against um, the the evil Putin empire. And um, I'm just sad that the that the Atlantic keeps giving this guy a platform to write this stuff. Right. Oh, and the the one that he wrote before this, uh, the the one that you had mentioned, where he's talking about American hesitation, uh, contains some really extraordinary claims, uh, where where he's actually uh, denying that uh, we have to worry about Russia's nuclear weapons if we attack Russian forces that are outside of Russia, as though the Russians would view an attack on their own forces while they're engaged in this war as somehow not being an attack on Russia itself. Uh, and he also claims that Russia doesn't have escalation dominance, even though they have nuclear weapons, they have a lot of tactical nuclear weapons, uh, and they care about this issue a lot more than we do. So so the idea that we can somehow uh, overawe them or intimidate them into giving up uh, is really quite crazy. Uh, and But as you say, it's being given this uh, very prominent, respectable uh, platform uh, to put out ideas that if they were implemented, uh, could very well get us all killed. Right. And, you know, I can't emphasize this enough. You and I have spent the last, um, you know, I don't know how many years talking about how the neocons um, led us into a disastrous war, uh, a global war on terror, uh, following the the 2011, a uh, 2001 uh, terror attacks. He is one of those neocons. He has been given a platform at the Atlantic, um, a, a establishment magazine of 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 renown. Um, I personally don't like it. I don't like what they're doing over there. Um, but this is. This is a go-to magazine for the liberal establishment. 
The reason why they like Elliot Cohen is because he came out very early against Trump, declared himself a never Trumper, declared himself, uh, he said he would never work for that Republican administration again. And he's been in good standing with um, liberal Washington ever since. But we need to call him what he is. He is one of the neocons who helped protract that war in Iraq and Afghanistan for as long as they did last. And a lot of lives were lost on both, uh, not only on our side, but Afghan lives were lost. Uh, Iraqi lives were lost because of that war. And we need to remember that. Our guest today is Kelsey Atherton. He is a military technology journalist. His work has appeared in Popular Science, Scientific American, Forbes, Foreign Policy, Slate, Breaking Defense, The New York Times, and Responsible Statecraft, among others. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. That's good to talk to you. Um, you recently wrote about what a no-fly zone over Ukraine would require. Can you give us a summary of the risks and problems of establishing a no-fly zone in this conflict? Sure. So every no-fly zone exists as a threat and a promise to use existing, um, to use one nation's military to shoot down the aircraft of another military. Um, specifically in Ukraine, this would mean using U.S. Um, and or NATO, other NATO ally planes to shoot down Russian aircraft over Ukrainian skies. Um, it requires technically a lot of um, coordination with early warning systems. You have to find the incoming aircraft when they cross the border and when they're operating and you have to hit them in the sky while they're still there. Um, and uh, that also means that you are, uh, by declaring a no-fly zone, you would be declaring, you'd be threatening to escalate. You would be escalating a war with another nuclear-armed nation and you would have to hope that the promise of we will escort your planes out of the country you are invading doesn't lead to um, a shooting war, which seems extremely unlikely. Sure. Well, and, and in addition to shooting down Russian planes over Ukraine, it would probably also require, uh, wouldn't it, uh, attacking Russian air defenses that are based inside Russia in order to make sure that our planes aren't shot down. Right. So that's one of the things that is, um, I know flight zone doesn't strictly require it, but it almost certainly inevitably ends up that way where right. one of the things that makes no-fly zone sort of distinct from just declaring um, an air war against a country and bombing their stuff is in theory, a no-fly zone is supposed to be limited to action in the airspace of the uh, country um, that's selected. But in practice, it almost always in involves um, attacks on the ground the U.S. experience of no-fly zones in Iraq, which are the uh, sort of prototypical no-fly zones from which um, all others have drawn a, a mixed bag of lessons, involved the U.S. actively flying um, into declared areas and shooting down um, Iraqi anti-air, um, Iraqi aircraft, and also Iraq uh, surface-to-air missiles, which were on the ground. Um, and it would be probably reasonable to assume that any declared no-fly zone would expand to the U.S., um, targeting air bases in Russia and anti-air missiles um, in Russia, which at that point is just war with a far more jargony name. Right, absolutely. 
Uh, well, and you've seen some people in Congress trying to get around the reality of this by cooking up all sorts of absurd, uh, made-up ways of imposing a no-fly zone. You've had people talking about using EMPs, people using other things that aren't even remotely applicable. I, I think somebody talked about using sonar somehow. Uh, and there, there's this very strong desire to to get us into the war without seeming or without admitting that we're getting us into the war, right? Uh, what, what do you make of some of these these crackpot notions? I, mean, I think there there's two big things going on. One, I think um, just in general, I think Congress shares a fairly baseline understanding of um, what war entails with the with the general public, which is an assumption that you're unless. Uh, Americans in uniform are doing the actual fighting. It doesn't count as being part of the war. Um, I think that's a pretty reasonable baseline assumption, but it's uh, wildly off. Um, and it's off for a host of reasons. I think there's an assumption that there are more capable weapons than exist in reality, EMPs, um, to just harp on them very quickly. The only reliable way to get a electromagnetic pulse at scale that can disable many, many vehicles um, and electronic systems is to detonate a nuclear warhead in the high atmosphere, uh, which is a non-starter for a host of reasons that turns this uh, thing built as we're going to clear the sky to we're going to start a nuclear war and hope it doesn't go beyond the one nuke that we get to use. Um, it's a mess. It's a disaster. Um, the other thing, I think, is that there's really a weird disconnect between what the U.S. is actually doing and how involved the U.S. is in supporting the Ukrainian war effort um, from what people in Congress think is happening. They don't, they don't see American planes flying over Ukraine and therefore the war, the U.S. isn't um, doing anything in the war. And that's wildly off base given the uh, tremendous amount of reporting we already have of intelligence coordination, of arms flows, um, of just a, a huge backstop of the U.S., sort of doing the arsenal of democracy thing again. Right. Well, in, in addition to that, there's also been a lot of uh, intelligence gathering that's been shared with the Ukrainians, I think. So there, there's that as well that people are not paying attention to. Uh, turning to uh, drones, I know that's another area that you write a lot about, that you know a lot about. Uh, the, the Turkish uh, Bayraktar TB2 drones have been very useful for Ukrainian forces in the last several weeks in attacking Russian targets. Uh, they were also used extensively by Azerbaijan in the Karabakh war to devastating effect. Uh, what makes them such effective armed drones and what has been the role of armed drones overall on both sides of the war as far as you can make out? Sure. So one of the things to keep in mind, and this is sort of the the drones have a, a useful tactical value. It is good um, for a military to have a camera in the sky with a anti-tank missile on it. Um, that's pretty self-explanatory what you can get from it. It also helps... Um, better target artillery. Um, if the drone is shot down, you're not losing much and you at least know where some anti-air weapons are if that happens. Tremendous amount of utility in that. The other utility beyond the immediate, how it will like uh, fight or help fight specific um, vehicles and, and uh, places entrenched people are with weapons is you can get video out of it. And this was sort of the big revelation of the Nagorno-Karabakh war. Um, it's not just that the drones have a strict military utility, it's that they're also filming their own um, video of successes that you can release. And because it's 
video recorded by and collected by a military and then gets to be published by that military later, you can have a pretty selective effect of showing only your greatest hits, um, as it were. And it makes it appear as though the drones sort of have this um, overwhelming effect. If what is being seen of the war online and in Western countries where there is still access to the internet or countries outside Russia that still have broad access to the internet, you can see lots and lots of videos of uh, Bayraktar's successfully um, hitting hitting Russian vehicles. And that's a huge thing. It, it makes it look like the military is, um, as to, to lean on a, a Michael Kaufman phrase, it makes the military look more like it's 12 feet tall. Um, and it's not necessarily a whole picture. There's certainly, you can't get that video without destroying some vehicles, but it's not the whole picture. We're getting a very selective thing. We should understand that all the video we see of drones is coming through a, a fog of war and is being selectively released. Thank you, Kelsey, for coming on the show. I'm, I'm really excited. Um, we haven't had a, um, a military journalist, someone who has a, a technological expertise that you have, particularly during this time of the uh, Russia-Ukraine crisis. I guess what I wanted to add, I had something else teed up, but what I wanted to ask you, uh, you talked about the fog of war. As a journalist um, in your in your particular field, have have you been frustrated um, with the information coming out? Um, have you had any difficulties drilling down on what is exactly happening uh, on the ground, or are you tapping into sources of information that perhaps most of us aren't? in terms of getting a clear picture of the capabilities of both the Ukrainians and the Russians? So to the extent that I have any um, special insight or access to information, it's that uh, I've been um, reporting on the the machines of this war for, for some time. Um, I've never, I haven't, I haven't done any, any trips to Ukraine. I haven't, I haven't seen anything on the ground, though there was. Um, it's, it's sort of gets lost in this, that Ukraine and Russia have been fighting a version of this war since 2014. Um, it was a very small version, but there was a lot of the same machines were tested. Um, There's a lot of the, the Bayraktar first got its use by Ukraine um, in the Donetsk war. Um, so there's there's some of that. But basically what I have been is I've just uh, been following um, and talking with people who have some experience covering that. Um, so I am, um, as, as limited by the, the fog of wars generally, I try to keep my observations to what is open source. Um, I'm not on the ground. It's very hard to be on the ground. Um, I, uh, another a journalist I, I know is uh, there in, in Kharkiv for the first start, and he it was uh, just a harrowing experience to be there. We have that incredible AP story about the two journalists who were in uh, Mariupol, um, apologies on the pronunciation, who were there until... Um, until they just they poss- could not possibly be there anymore. Um, and so the way I work around that without having any special insight um, into it is to acknowledge that what we are seeing comes through this filter. Um, and I can write about what story the Ukrainian military is telling, what story the Russian military is telling, how they're releasing video selectively, what kind of information is put out there. But that comes with the caveat that Countries do this with a motive. There's a very clear reason why you would say some things and why you would not say others. Um, and so I think the truth of the war will eventually be be known, but it's hard to know, especially we are 
barely, we're almost a month in. Um, and it'll be a long time before we have a clear sense of what it is. And a lot of that reconstruction will come from video collected contemporaneously and also like investigations of figuring out where cluster bomblets were or what other things were. And some of it will remain um, unknowable basically forever, given the nature of war. You know, um, having said all that, you know, the mainstream media is giving us the picture that the Russian military is basically falling apart. And they've had to sort of now rely on uh, missiles uh, to create um, as much damage as possible in these civilian centers because their on the ground game um, has not um, stood up and they've lost and the estimates are like 7,000 to 14,000 soldiers and mm -hmm. you've heard all of the stories. What do you make of that? I mean, um, do, you, do you believe that the Russian military has, has basically, um, you know, uh, fallen far below the expectations of what most experts had believed that they were capable of, that that Ukraine is is actually winning this war. Uh, there are people like Elliot Cohen out there in the Atlantic who say that they're the Ukrainians are winning even more than the mainstream media is letting on. Um, but from your professional vantage point, what do you where do you think the truth might lie in all of that? So I think um, it's a jargony phrase, but it's so relevant in understanding this conflict and especially understanding how sort of a, a narrative, how people are understanding the conflict. Ukraine has done a tremendous job of, of selling itself um, as, as far more capable than people imagined going in. Um, it's, Hard to remember, but before the actual invasion, there was a lot of talk from even Ukraine's government that um, talking about the mass of Russian forces on the border was like going to drive tourists away and hurt the economy. It was a very weird pivot. I don't particularly think that will hold up well in the grander reckoning of things. I think if you have uh, a tank army massing on the border for three months before the war, you should maybe take more immediate preparations and we don't know everything. But um, what we have seen since the Russian invasion, it became clear really the first few days into the Russian invasion that uh, Putin's big objective of capturing Kiev and sort of forcing out Zelensky and possibly having a new uh, government installed or, or uh, a compromise position written, um, that has not happened. The maximalist Russian aims seem unattainable. That, I think, is true. But that's been true. What's tricky now, because um, Russia has not released a lot of um, stuff, it's hard to trust anything released by a government in wartime that to just be a baseline skepticism. But what's tricky is we can see the, uh, the major offensive on Kiev has stalled. That's well reported. That's there. They, they are not, they have not been able to encircle the city. What might change, and this is sort of the thing I think that would shift the narrative, is what happens um, to, to Mariupol, what happens in the eastern part of the country. Because there's, even if all of Russia's military has underperformed to the extent it appears they have performed, there is a certain quality to quantity. The Russian military um, is massive. It has a there is there's only there's a finite number of anti-tank missiles, though right Ukraine keeps getting more of them. Um, and what 
is sort of, I think, getting lost in this notion that Ukraine is performing what expected is that in order for the war to shift decisively into a clear Ukrainian victory, um, where the Russian military is is driven from the country, we would have to see a kind of major counteroffensive. Um, and Ukraine's had a lot of success with ambushes. They've had some minor counteroffensives, but they haven't yet sort of dislodged the big Russian positions. Um, it's unlikely they would be able to take Crimea just in general. Um, and the fighting in the East is it's just hard to, to know. And I think the thing that people are least prepared for is a kind of stagnant front. Um, I think there's going to be some big public discrepancy with what happens if the war gets bogged down, if Kiev holds, but the East is still um, messy with fighting. And then that's kind of the weird position where you have to get the an end comes through negotiation. And if you've been fed a narrative that the Ukrainian military um, has completely overmatched the Russians, you're going to be disappointed or confused when that doesn't lead to a, like, Putin abdicating. Right. Do you, um, do you feel like that there is an amount of, um, you know, over-optimism on behalf of at least Americans and the American media, where there is this call for just pouring more weapons and more assistance into this situation, what would you tell the American public or how would you caution um, them in terms of how well, how that might um, uh, impact or not the realities on the ground? I mean, uh, there does seem to be a disconnect um, between what people believe that kind of assistance can do and what it, it might end up actually doing. So I think in general, we're in a better position if um, of U.S. policy options, I prefer arms being sent to the U.S. getting uh, directly involved with its own uh, ground forces or aircraft or, or doing any of the fighting itself. And same is true with, with NATO allies broadly. Um, so I think if the conversation is focused on weapons, that's a better understanding. But I think the um, the expectation that it will take a grinding war or even that we might get to an armistice with Russian forces deep into Ukraine is not particularly on the table. And I think that needs to be understood because the danger there um, is that U.S. policymakers will feel compelled to shift the fighting with a new with, by expanding the war. And that's where it gets really dicey. Um, the nuclear arsenals are obviously um, sort of at the forefront of my mind all of the time. There's uh, been a lot of talk of sort of escalate to de-escalate in Russia's doctrine and, uh, and smaller nuclear weapons, often called tactical nukes, are kind of um, being discussed as a possibility in the in the U.S. press. It's unclear um, if Russia has actually made any, any moves to deploy that. It's hard to know, though. That wouldn't be a thing that would be transparent either way. Um, and so I think what's what's most important to understand is that the likely way the war ends is with some negotiated withdrawal and some change. The most dangerous notion, and we hear from people who, who very clearly, passionately feel that um, invasions are by authoritarians are wrong, which agreed, but also don't really have a clear sense of what an end of war entails. And that's if you if you remove the possibility of off-ramps being discussed, if you remove 
a path for de-escalation, then the war will grind on longer and bloodier and will be worse. And Ukraine needs to have, to get to peace, Ukraine will need to have some way to let the Russian military leave. It is unlikely they will be able to drive every single uh, Russian military unit from the country without that. Um, And I think that's not being, that's not an expectation that's out there yet in the public. And speaking of the possible use of nuclear weapons, it seems like the the one scenario where that use becomes most likely is if Putin or the the Russian leadership more uh, broadly believes that they are now uh, cornered, that they are under in danger of losing their own power and their their possibly even their lives, and so insisting on regime change, as as some people have started talking about in the last few weeks. Uh, seems to be exactly the kind of thing that would put us in that that no-win scenario. Right? So, I mean, I, I saw one column just recently saying that no sanctions should be lifted until Putin is gone, which is basically saying well, we're never lifting sanctions, period. Um, uh, how, how much of a danger is that? I mean, Biden doesn't seem to be going that way, but how much of a danger is that if this goes on for a year or two? Right, I think one of the very there's there's a weird disconnect in a lot of policy of whether or not sanctions are functional or punitive. They're obviously both, um, or at least they're obviously punitive. But the idea that you would put up a sanctions regime and then not remove it when conditions are met seems absurd to me. I know, I know there are constituencies for the, the immiseration of the public of countries that launch wars. It's not like it's, it's, weird to do it for a democracy where that that is um there's even nominally some line between public opinion and what happens and it's bizarre to do it for an autocracy where there's no real direct connection between public sentiment and foreign policy um and you need to have a path out um sanctions removing sanctions on like the condition of russian military withdrawal seems like even that pretty um a fairly straightforward approach that could be taken if you create a situation where a leader has no out but they have a nuclear arsenal it's uh bleak i don't i don't particularly want to to be in that world or see the policy and i don't think that's actually happening in the highest circles um it's i think uh been remarked that the biden administration is one of the least online of uh recent memory and i think that helps sort of insulate it from the weird fever swamps of of uh, bad idea theater but the way a like if the a nuclear arsenal exists to ensure regime survival, um, I think having Putin abdicate is whether or not Putin remains in power is a question left purely to to Russia. And given the massive crackdown um, by the Russian state on on even uh, solitary protests, um, it seems unlikely a popular movement will oust him. Who it's it, it's impossible to really guess at what will happen among other power brokers in Russia. And so it's a weird thing for the U.S. to speculate on. When the U.S. speculates on it, Russia thinks that it is a coordinated foreign plot to oust him, and it sort of makes the nationalist case for Putin staying in power stronger, which is a weird dynamic to happen. And we should talk about, to to go back to no-fly zones for a second, um, the experience of the Libya no-fly zone was that Russia was uh, has been plausibly argued, not Russia, that Libya was on the verge of um, crushing a, a several rebellions against the Gaddafi government before um, 
France and Britain with U.S. support set up a no-fly zone over Libya, and that ended with, with Gaddafi dead in a ditch. And the idea that another country would go along with the series of steps that could lead to the uh, brutal massacre or personal death, um, a direct attack on the person of the state, uh, if they have nuclear weapons, seems absurd. The, the nuclear weapons are, the, are insurance against regime change. And to understand how this war will continue and how this war will end needs to take into account the fact that that, that changes the calculus. This is not um, an Iraq without WMD. This is not Libya. This is a different scenario. And every possible outcome has to be understood as managed by that constraint. Yeah, that's a good place to leave it. Uh, thanks very much, Kelsey, uh, Kelsey Atherton. Uh, we appreciate having you on. A pleasure. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.